Well, this morning we're continuing our series looking at the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5, where Jesus gives some teaching on his relationship to the Torah or the Jewish covenantal law. Now, I might be wrong, but I'm guessing that probably this wasn't something you woke up thinking about this morning, but this was a major, major issue for the people of his day. You see, the Torah represented the story of God's relationship with his people and how they could know him. And Jesus strode onto the scene saying that this whole story was leading up to his arrival. And not only that, but it was now completely fulfilled in him, which apparently confused a lot of his hearers and so Jesus seems to have felt the need to try and explain himself which is pretty much what he does in today's passage. Now look, even if that doesn't sound particularly thrilling to you, I want you to trust me on this because this is incredibly important and I'd suggest it's hugely applicable to us in ways that I'm going to do my very best to try to unpack in the next 25 minutes. So all that being said, let's dive right into the passage. Matthew 5 verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now just to step back and try and fill in a bit of the background here, if you remember Jesus has been explaining in quite some detail what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy and whole, what it means to have this flourishing life. But to the people listening to him, there was actually already an accepted way to be happy and whole, and it was all to do with following the law of God. Now, if you wanted to live a blessed life, you would work incredibly hard to obey God's law to the very letter. Just as, I guess, in our day, we also have an accepted way of being happy, don't we? In our culture, we believe that to be happy, we, we need all of our desires to be fulfilled. It's like we need to pursue all of our ambitions. And if we finally get what we want, then we'll be happy. And so... If the ancient way to be happy was to be true to the law of God, I guess the modern way is to be true to yourself. And Jesus comes along and he offers us a third way. He says, let me offer you a different approach to this. Now, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to give us some very practical instructions for how to live. And I've got to warn you, it's a little different to the law of Moses and to the law of our culture today. He suggests 
a way for being, a way for existing, a way for living in this world that is at odds with both the ancient and the modern way of viewing things. It very much messes with all of our preconceived assumptions. To people who want to be true to the law or true to themselves, Jesus offers a radically different route to happiness. But he starts off with a bit of reassurance. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. He's saying, don't think I've come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. Don't think I've come to abolish the story of God's covenant love. Don't think I've come to abolish the stories of the greats of the faith like Abraham, Isaac and Moses. Don't think I've come to rip up the story of the exodus, of God delivering his people from captivity and leading them through the wilderness and finally into the promised land. Don't think I've come to abolish the law that outlines how my people are to live. Now look. Before we go any further with this, I, I probably need to just clear up very quickly a common misconception here. You see, the law was never, ever the way that people became God's people. The law wasn't something that people did in order to be saved. No, the law is what saved people did. You understand the difference between the two? That the law was intended as a covenant that explained how two parties, God and his people, would be committed to one another. And so the law wasn't primarily a list of commandments that you did in order to be God's people. No, it, it was the way you lived as God's people. In other words, obedience to the law wasn't just an ethical issue. It was a relational issue. So if you broke the law, the problem wasn't so much that you broke a rule, but that you broke a relationship. It was an intimacy problem. It was a worship problem. And so the whole emphasis of the law was on relational commitment rather than mere moral performance. It was always about faithfulness from the heart, which is why, for example, God says through the prophet Isaiah to people who were following the law by offering sacrifices while also worshipping false idols, he says, I hate your sacrifices because it was never just about the rules. It was always about the heart. That's what really matters. And so when Jesus refers to the law, he's thinking of living with God in a covenant relationship of trust. It was tapping into this story of how God chose and saved a people to love and bless and how they would be committed to one another. And so referring to all of that, Jesus says, please do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. In other words, it is not as if the law isn't authoritative anymore. It's not like we can just go out and ignore it all. But there is a shift now. It might help perhaps to think of the law like a mediator. So uh, to know whether you were in good standing with God, that the question you would ask back in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament was, how am I relating to the law? And now Jesus is saying, no, 
if you want to know whether you're in good relationship with God, you actually need to ask, how am I relating to Jesus? Which might not sound that big a deal to you, but to Jesus' first century audience, this was huge. I mean, the law impacted on everything, that the food they eat, ate, the clothes they wore, how they related to people, what, what they did during the week, what they did with their finances. It, it dealt with every single detail. It was absolutely central to their lives. And now Jesus is saying, I am going to be central to your life. Jesus is coming to the Jewish community and saying, I am that important. I am the fulfillment of the law. I'm the one the, the law was always pointing towards. I'm the whole point. From now on, the way you'll sustain a covenant relationship of love with God and express intimacy to him is through me. Now to the Jews, really the only thing that was more important than the law was the author of the law. And this is what Jesus is claiming he is claiming divine authority and not just over them back then but over your life too jesus would look you in the eye and say i am the absolute authority over your life over your decisions over your dreams over your ambitions over your goals over your actions everything which surely means you can't just be neutral about Jesus. You, you can't just kind of say, well, I like Jesus. I uh, agree with most of what he says, like his teaching on love and being merciful to people. But, I mean, let's be honest, I don't go along with it all. You can't do that with Jesus. Because Jesus claims to have absolute authority over your life. And to disagree with him is to disagree with God. Listen, you have to either agree with Jesus completely and give him your whole life and worship him and make him central or you have to reject him completely. All of which sounds ever so slightly heavy, doesn't it? But it's actually incredibly good news. Here's why. Jesus is telling us here that the key to relationship with God is not our obedience. It's him. In other words, what is central to the whole storyline of the Bible and what is central to your life today is Jesus. What, what matters the most between you and God is not how you are performing morally or spiritually. It is nothing at all to do with how good you are. The whole starting place for your relationship with God is always and everywhere Jesus. And so if you want a deep and vibrant relationship with God, you need to come to Jesus. If you want a blessed, flourishing, happy and whole life, come to Jesus. Where the law used to function as this kind of mediator between people and God, now Jesus is that mediator. It's on reflection. It shouldn't really have come as any great surprise to the people back in Jesus' day, because whispering through all of the law 
was the common message that it wasn't enough. That lamb was sacrificed, but it wasn't enough to cover all your sins. That single fabric tunic wasn't enough to make you pure. It was a provisional way that God provided in his kindness to, to point to something more. It, it was there to beg the question back then, if this isn't enough, then what is? In the same way that I think perhaps this current season that we're living through right now is exposing the fundamental flaws in our culture's strategy for pursuing happiness and surely points to our need for something more. I mean, it's all very well, isn't it? Living for now and exerting our right to be who we want to be, but it is not such good news when now isn't particularly great and we're powerless to do anything about it. It's not all that liberating when it begins to sink in that ultimately we are not in control. Which is why I think a lot of us are beginning to see through the individualism and self-reliance that our culture is built on and are just starting to ask the same question really. If this isn't enough, then what is? And Jesus appears on the scene. And through his life, his death, his resurrection, he does something deeper than anything that being true to the law or being true to yourself could ever do. He does something deeper than simply forgiving your sins and resetting everything to give you a fresh chance. He, he does something even more radical than giving you permission to exist as whoever you want. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus raises you up into his existence. Please don't miss this. There is a whole brand new identity that you receive in Christ that neither the law nor our so-called progressive culture could ever, ever, ever give us. The, the good news of Jesus is so much more than your, your sins are forgiven and so you can now have a clear conscience. And it's far better than the gospel of our culture that you can be whoever you want to be or you can realise whatever dreams you have for your life. I tell you, it's way better than that. It's through my death and resurrection, what's mine is now yours. Jesus says what is true of me can now be true of you. It's incredible. We're welcome into the family of God with a glorious inheritance to come. And it's through no work of our own, but it's solely through Jesus' finished work on the cross. So just let it sink in. What matters the most is not how we are performing. What matters most is our relationship to Jesus. Because his performance is enough to cover us completely. Listen, we do not come to God because we did well. We come because he did well. 
And so it's always the same. That the Father is eternally delighted in Christ, which means that if I am in Christ, my confidence is eternally in his ability, his performance and his righteousness, which never changes. Hallelujah! Which is great, but here's the problem. If we're not careful, I think our whole relationship with God can very easily revert back to being all about how well we did. Because, you see, the enemy will keep accusing us, will keep reminding us of all of our failures, will keep telling us that it's all about us and that we're just not good enough. But it's never been about us being good enough. And so uh, we're going to shrug our shoulders and agree with the accusations of the enemy. We, we could admit all of our failures. We, we don't have to pretend that we're better than we really are. Even on our worst day, even when it feels like we have blown it completely, we can still come confidently to our Heavenly Father because nothing has changed. If I'm in Christ, He is still my righteousness. It's amazing. Even when my performance is pretty rubbish, his performance is enough for me. It's like when I'm at my worst is the point where I get to celebrate most the riches of his incredible grace to me. Which is all well and good. But it does require a response. And as we read on in this passage, we see Jesus highlighting two very common responses here that are both deeply flawed. The first one is to hear all of this and just relax God's commandments. You could call this licentiousness. It's a kind of license to do whatever you want to do. It's to be indifferent. It's like, well, we've got Jesus and so we're free to live however we want. I mean, Jesus is loving, isn't he? And I'm sure he wants me to be happy. And so surely he'd want me to do whatever makes me feel happy. To which Jesus says, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So I'd humbly suggest we don't do that. The other response is to have more of a legalistic view of God's commandments. You, you kind of ramp up all the laws of God and put all of your confidence in your meticulous obedience to them. But Jesus says that's not enough either. He says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you've got these two different responses that at least on the surface seem to be poles apart, don't they? But Jesus suggests that actually they both come from the same place. At the end of the day, they are both heart issues. Both licentiousness and legalism expose how you feel about God. They're both fundamentally a relational problem. For the legalist... It exposes a kind of harshness, a, a judgmental attitude towards others and towards God. It's like if I obligate myself to all of these laws, then God will have to bless me. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to resent him. 
Uh, it's like a, a transaction where we make God indebted to us and it is nothing to do with intimacy or love. And then the licentious person, well, they're indifferent to what God wants. I want you to think about it. Think about it on a human level. Uh, if you're in a relationship with someone, let, let's say with a, with a close friend of yours, and you, you never care about what they desire or want, then let, let's be real, you don't love them. You effectively just love yourself. And how much more is that true when it comes to our relationship to God? So let's be honest. Really, neither of those responses properly understands how a loving relationship is intended to work. The other thing about both those responses is that they both assume that God is unwilling to bless us unless we perform in a certain way. The legalist takes on that burden and carries it and gets crushed by it. The licentious person casts it off and says, well, if God really loves me, he wouldn't care what I do. And both miss the heart of God. That goodness and wholeness and ultimate happiness come from being joyfully submitted to him because he is joyfully committed to you. Now, let's be honest. I think probably there's a little bit of legalism and licentiousness in each of our hearts, isn't there? And I think the way we tend to deal with it is to lurch from one to the other. And so if we spot a little bit of legalism creeping in, we think what we need to do is just be a little more free, just relax a bit, give in to our desires to loosen up that hold of legalism. And then we start to feel guilty, don't we? And so uh, we think perhaps we need some more rules to get us back on the straight and narrow. Listen, our problem is never resolved by the other error. Christianity is not some balancing act between legalism and licentiousness. Both are wrong. Completely. What you need is Christ. You need freedom in Christ. You need to press into the loving covenant commitment of Christ. Do you see that the remedy for a hard transactional heart or a spiritually indifferent heart is identical. You need to press into the gospel of grace and the cross of Christ and experience firsthand the infinite goodness that's found there. I mean, if your heart is hard, and you just think you need to keep on following the rules. When you hear the words of Jesus, he would say to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Notice, he doesn't say to the legalist, come to me and then go and pursue anything you want. No, he says, come to me and I I will give you rest. Or for the indifferent, 
Those people who think that God's demands are unfair and restrictive and harsh and too costly. Like, when did God ever experience the cost? When did he ever have to sacrifice anything for me? And even as you're saying that sentence, perhaps you're beginning to see the answer. Because God put on flesh and experienced more of the cost of this covenant relationship than you or I will ever experience. Jesus says, look at the cross and know how much I'm committed to you. Look at the cross and know my love. Look at the cross and know that even as my enemies are driving nails into my hands, I'm crying out for their forgiveness. What love is this? It's the greatest love the world has ever seen. And this love is for you. Jesus died knowing what kind of a person you would turn out to be so that he could receive you as a brother or sister and make you over time into the person you're always meant to be, happy and whole and flourishing. Yes, life with God, it demands sacrifice. And not just sacrifice, it will cost you everything. Just like any great relationship of love costs you everything. But know that the sacrifice and cost of Jesus was infinitely deeper. And his love is greater than we could ever fully know or perform to earn. And to live in this love and to abide with Christ like this is the very best life there is. It's how life was always designed to be lived. It's happiness and wholeness at the deepest level. And it's freely available to you today. If you'll simply come to Jesus and submit to him as king over your whole life. I guess the question is, how are you going to respond to this? How are you going to respond? I don't know, maybe you're already living in the good of this. Well done! Keep it up. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5 verse 12, keep standing firm in the grace of God. Brothers, perhaps you've drifted away from all of this. Maybe over time you've made it all about your performance and you've ended up feeling condemned and distant from God. Or maybe you've taken God's grace for granted. You've allowed compromise to seep into your life. Either way, Jesus is calling you back to him today. What's stopping you running into his arms? Won't you run into his arms? Or maybe you're watching this and if truth be told, you don't know Jesus. I want to invite you to do something about that. Maybe you need to keep inquiring. Maybe you need to look into this a little bit more. Uh, I, I tell you, Church Central it is a safe place to do that. Keep checking in on these talks. Come and engage a little more with our community. We welcome people with questions and doubts. 
you are very welcome with us. But maybe right now, you are ready to become one of Jesus' followers. If you want to give your life to following Jesus today, right here, right now, why don't you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. We just take a few moments to ask for his forgiveness for anything particular that's on your conscience at the moment. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong and choose to live for you from this point on. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven, set free and brought into relationship with you. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now look, if you've prayed this prayer for the very first time, or maybe if you're returning to Jesus after being absent for a while, we would absolutely love to hear from you. I'm guessing that the chances are you know someone at Church Central. If so, why not send them a quick message? Let them know how you've responded today. Or if you want to Get in touch with us. Please do email hello at churchcentral.org.uk and we'd love to be in touch and send you some resources to help you grow in your walk with Jesus. All that's left to say is please do tune in next week where we'll be seeking to answer the question, what has the current crisis taught us about ourselves? Hopefully see you next week. <laughs>